Well, hello, John. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I'm glad that uh, you were able to make it back from points west, finally back to, uh, I presume, Boston, because that looks like your office. I uh, kind of took the long way back to Denver, but uh, it was great to see you in person, and uh, I always love seeing you every week when we do the show. Yeah, it was good. I went the long, the long way back as well, so I, I went from Vegas to, to Los Angeles before I came back east because of all the disruptions that we got from Southwest Airlines, uh, the flights out of Las Vegas heading back uh, anywhere east were just unbelievable. Yeah. Jim. No, it was a real challenge. I mean, uh, you know, and for guys like you and me who spend our life at an airport, you know, you start, you know, trying to identify, you know, your primary flight, your backup flight, your backup to the backup flight, and then a backup backup to the backup flight. Yep. It's, it's a challenge. Yeah. Well, I left Vegas after we uh, attended the MBAA annual convention, and we're going to be talking about that on, uh, on the show. I ended up heading to Dallas because um, I had to teach tax investigation down there and then uh, made it home. But yeah, like you, I, I ran into uh, some of the issues with uh, Southwest Airlines scheduling. And uh, as one, uh, one of our friends from Southwest mentioned to me, he goes, yeah, we'll get you from point A to point B in the same day, usually. So uh, I, I, all I had to do was just laugh at that because they had canceled two of my flights and I was jockeying around and I ended up having to take another airline home. Um, but you know what? We've talked about it on the show in the past, John. Time to spare, go by air. People have got to have patience. It is what it is. And while, yeah, you can point the fingers and blame the airlines that they've screwed things up, especially because of COVID. Now they're short of pilots. Now they're short of airplanes. Now they're short of everything else. Um, and that the littlest hiccup now has a, uh, a cataclysmic wave to it. It is what it is. And if, you, if you're going to fly, be prepared for it. Uh, yes. Yes. Actually, flying on, on a, buying tickets like I do, but I oftentimes feel like I'm flying as an employee on space available because once you get disrupted, if, if your first flight, the one you reserve gets disrupted, then you're just thrown in the great big pot with a lot of people that, yeah. have, that have been disrupted. And it, it's, uh, it's quite a challenge. And that's what I saw when, I, when, when the Southwest plane was going down that's what I saw, and that's why I went to California to get away from where Southwest has their major operations, and, and so I can fly over them. Yeah, you know, there was coming out of Las Vegas, coming east. There was a limited number of flights, and they were already uh, full. But going back to California the other way, there was a million flights from Vegas to California, and then in California, there's a large number of flights coming east. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll be uh, I'll be doing that cross country trek um, this in the next couple of weeks. I've got a lot of traveling going on. I've been trying to uh, to schedule my flights midday. That seems to be more of a lull time than early in the morning or or late at night with the the business travelers and the tourists going out and and coming back. So I've been trying to schedule myself in the middle of the day just to relieve some of those issues. Um, at the airport, especially when coming through security, even with TSA pre and clear, 
um, the lines are still kind of long. So, you know, it is it is a game that we're playing, but uh, we'll talk about that. But uh, we also want to talk about our experience at the MBAA, National Business Aviation Association Annual Convention, which uh, was put on hiatus for a couple of years because of COVID, of course. And so uh, it was good to be back. Before we get into that, I know that uh, you're going to talk about our sponsors. Yes, I'd like to remind everybody that this show is being brought to you by Avemco Insurance, uh, the, in my opinion, the premier insurance company for general aviation aircraft, provide hull loss, liability, uh, CFI insurance, uh, renter's insurance, something's very important today. Uh, so all aspects of general aviation, commercial, first-class insurance company. Uh, I listen to them, I keep saying this, I listen to them at Oshkosh, uh, talking to their customers, very, very impressed with the knowledge they have of flying. Yeah. If you need insurance, give a Vemco a call, 888-879, I wish, oh, 888-879-0389. <laughs> Keep throwing that up. 888-879-0389 or Vemco.com. Great people to deal with. Uh, and the show is also brought to you by PAMA, Professional Aviation Maintenance Association. And we have on the horizon several uh, maintenance accidents to go over. Uh, and uh, some accidents that have a, a maintenance in uh, flight uh, crew uh, interface where both parties uh, had problems going. And sometimes, you know, pilots and mechanics sometimes don't talk the same language. And we're going to talk about that and some of the things that that uh, we all need to keep in consideration when we're talking about operational problems. Don, I love you as a co-host, but you know what? I'm making an executive decision. We're going to get a professional actor. Maybe I'll get Morgan Freeman or somebody to, to cut the commercials for us. Then that way you don't have to memorize that phone number anymore. <laughs> yes, that would be nice. <laughs> Normally, I have my little book in front of me with the phone number, but I, I don't have it right in front of me. But I'm yeah. Well, again, it was good to see you. We were in the same venue in Las Vegas. MBAA tries to switch the venue for their annual convention. Uh, next year, it'll be in Orlando, Florida. This year, fortunately, it was in Vegas. And um, I, I was very impressed, John. I mean, one... The, uh, the convention center there has expanded twofold. I mean, it is extremely, extremely big now. And, um, and they were fortunate enough to have their exhibits now in one hall. Normally it was spread out amongst different halls and that kind of stuff and kind of made it a little bit dis disjointed. But now every one of the exhibitors was in the same hall, which was very, very impressive because the MBAA show is the largest in the world for that segment of aviation. And uh, normally you have, you know, several tens of thousands of people rolling through there. So it was good to be in that venue. It was brand new. And you and I had the opportunity to teach accident investigation um, as part of the, uh, the pre-convention uh, safety seminars and seminars that are normally carried out. You and I got to do a little axe investigation with the maintenance side of the house. Yes, yes. Um, 
a society that doesn't get to to uh, see all of that very often. You know, this industry has a, a large emphasis on the flight deck side, but not as much on the maintenance side. So uh, we've reached out to the maintenance ma folks and just let them have a basic understanding of what's expected of them and what they should do the way they should behave during the course of an investigation and what it means to be a party to the investigation. And uh, it was well received as usual. I, I don't think I've ever had a class that uh, wasn't uh, happy to get to training, yeah. get the understanding really of, of what happened, why it happens and their role in, in developing solutions, you know, identifying the problem cause and also being able to have input into the recommendations that come out. Even and I think a, a lot of that, John, is, you know, what we try to do with this show, and that is give the backstory, give the stuff that is in the shadows that people don't really get to read about in a report. Uh, the news media doesn't report it and that kind of stuff. And when you and I go in and teach these classes or we teach our respective classes individually, I mean, this is the perspective that we both try to bring. Here's the way the NTSB or some other uh, federal authority is going to conduct the investigation. Here's the way it should be done versus sometimes the way they change the rules as the game is going on. And, and as long as the, the people that are participating with that subject expertise understand all of that, it, it cuts down on their frustration because you and I have both heard over the years, even when we were with the NTSB, that not only is the, uh, the process sometimes uh, cumber, encumbering and, and just cumbersome, uh, but of course, if you've never been involved in an accident or a serious incident investigation with, uh, with the board and the FAA and, and all the other players, it's a very intimidating process. It is. It is. In fact, more than once I've had one-on-one uh, -on -one or one-on-two uh, sessions with my, my peers, my maintenance people at accidents, explaining to them what's going to happen and uh, the process and procedures. Uh, because it, they don't get to be involved in it very often. It, it's very intimidating for them. Well, we got to make some new friends. Uh, I know that uh, we'll probably be invited back. We gave them some insights that, uh, again, they didn't hear about. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. And I know that we're going to expand that because uh, we're going to be doing a similar type presentation at the, M what, what is it, the maintenance uh, conference as well? Maintenance conference as well. I'm, I'm actually thinking about including some uh, programs within my aerospace maintenance skills competition that we hold in, in uh, April every year. And uh, we haven't had it for the last, because of COVID, uh, we had it in 19, we didn't have it in 20. So we're coming back. In fact, we were a little nervous bringing it back if, you know, we've broken the momentum that we had. And, uh, but we just opened up registration within the last two weeks, and we already have 40 teams registered. We That's awesome. We take 90. The maximum number is 90, so we're already at 40. Yeah. So, well, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I get to participate. You've given me a little bigger role this year, so uh, I'm, looking, I'm looking forward to it because uh, it is an amazing event. I love, I mean, it's like the Olympics for uh, maintenance tech folks, and, um, and they take it extremely seriously as you described to me in the past and of course the times that I have been down there just to see the enthusiasm and the pride that uh, these teams take and we're not just talking about 
you know, um, maintenance trade schools and things like that, where you, you go learn to be a maintenance tech. You have world airlines coming in with their teams because they want to leave there the best. We've, we've had teams from, from Korea, Japan, China, uh, Australia. Uh, in Europe, we've had uh, uh, the United Kingdom. We've had uh, representatives from the Middle East. I mean, it, it, we, they're from all over, Pakistan even. Uh, so we've had uh, the worldwide maintenance community come together at various times uh, to participate. And it's a lot of fun, but there is a lot of competition. And the, the thing that I find uh, most rewarding for all the time and effort that I put in and, and the rest of the, the folks put in, to see the old gray hairs, my peers, the guys from the airlines, working with the kids to help them through the process because a lot of the testing that we have, they've never seen before. It's too, uh, some of the technology is too expensive for the schools. And John, you know that those young maintenance technicians don't wanna know how they work on an airplane where wing warping is still a part of history. It's an, it is not part. it's an important skill to have. You understand that. <laughs> you learned it with the Wright brothers. You don't need to be passing it on. But, but we had this conversation and it is kind of interesting because, uh, you know, one of the qualifications of being a maintenance technician is being able to uh, repair, quote, dope and fabric airplanes. And that's not the kind of dope. It's actually the, the, uh, the epoxy type material or the thing that makes the, uh, the, the silk or the fabric uh, stiff um, because that really is a prelude to what is being used today. And that is of course, carbon fiber, fiberglass on a lot of aircraft. Yeah, I tell people all the time that we teach composites in the A&P schools because dope and fabric was the first composite. Two-part process. Yeah. At least a two-part process to give us dope and fabric wings. And today we're using, you know, more sophisticated processes to, to uh, make carbon. But the concept is the same. Yeah. Uh, finally, we're going to, we're uh, in the process of updating some of those maintenance training requirements to include more, more processes. Boy, the FAA can be a stick in the mud sometimes with, you know, they pass a rule and they don't ever want to change it. And the industry has been trying to get dope and fabric modernized and it's been very hard, but we're on the, on the cusp of getting that accomplished now and, and, and teaching more avionics. Uh, because avionics has become so integrated into the airplanes. Uh, it's not just a black box anymore up front. It's everywhere. The computer yeah. chips are on virtually every component on the airplane today. In the, uh, and we heard loud and clear MBAA when they, on the session that they had dealing with avionics in the future and artificial intelligence being plugged in. Yep. Instead of, you know, we hear all the time and we talk about it all the time, about uh, pilots that are flying the automation and they've forgotten how to fly the airplane. Well, the avionics manufacturers have heard that as well. And now they're designing avionics systems to take that into consideration by using artificial intelligence to help the pilots so that they don't uh, forget how to fly the airplane or get in trouble because they're flying the automation. Yeah. So 
we're on the cusp of, of a number of changes in the avionics field as well. Well, you and I have investigated a number of accidents where a different form of artificial intelligence was sitting in that cockpit and unfortunately it didn't fare well. And, um, and we've also talked about the fact that there is this uh, dependence on automation and what pilots may lack in skills, abilities, knowledge, and experience, they transfer that confidence into the aircraft because of course those avionics are smart. That is, you got TAWS, you got TCAS, you got uh, GPS, you got a, a flight management system and an autopilot. Now you have the little blue button that'll auto land the airplane. When you get in trouble, you got parachutes, all of that kind of stuff. When you start looking at all of those things, not as a secondary tool to help a pilot be a better human pilot, but they transfer the confidence that they lack in all of their own personal skills into the airplane to keep them out of trouble. And that's when they get in trouble the most because they don't understand one, if the airplane starts doing something, how long do they let the airplane go before they take some sort of intervention action? And then when they do, it's usually wrong or it's too late. And, and again, while automation is great, I love the advances and that kind of stuff. Are we now taking it to a level of dumbing down the human pilot so much? And of course, you know, the industry is trying to go to not only, you know, single pilot in a, in a 737 or an Airbus uh, A320 or whatever. Um, they don't want anybody up there to begin with. I can tell you right now, categorically on the record, I will never get on an airplane where there isn't a human sitting up front. And those days are coming. And the passengers are going to be the one to determine whether or not that program is successful. You know, yeah. well, major manufacturers are uh, re-engaged with the authorities again for single pilot operations for yep. both size airplanes. So yep. they were engaged uh, uh, prior to 2010, if my memory serves me right, they were engaged then, they didn't get any traction, but they did identify areas which they had to work on. And I know that they've gone and, and worked on those areas. And now they're coming back again to start the discussions on where they need to go to make that happen. And it's probably going to happen in the cargo side of the house first because the cargo is not going to complain. Uh, but how much traction it gets hauling passengers is yet to be seen. Yeah. And well, the other about travel today being the bus travel. Yeah. Airplanes replaced a lot of the bus passengers are now flying on airplanes because the fares can be so cheap. Uh, yeah. Well, buses only have one person driving them too. Yeah. So it's going to be. Uh, we're about to go through a, probably a decade of some very interesting changes in aviation. Well, and, and um, I got into a discussion, not only when I was with folks at the show, but when I was coming through Dallas, at, uh, the, the class that I was teaching with Ag, for acts investigation was a bunch of pilots. Uh, we got into this discussion for a second time, and that is, so now where does video cameras stand as far as being... Uh, located in the cockpit. My from my personal position is I don't care if I ever see a pilot in a video shot from the camera in the cockpit. I could care less. All I want to know is what they are looking at or what they are referring to. Because, John, we've talked about the fact that with cockpit voice recorders, there is no emotion. You just see written words on a piece of paper, but you don't know the emotional inflections. You don't know what the, uh, the seriousness of the event is that they're trying to point out. 
what uh, you know what the exclamation point is, if you will, um, because there is no emotion written in those written words, and that's why it's so important when we listen to a CVR, you're getting the intensity, you're getting whether or not this is just a benign event and they're doing things, you know, systematically, and it's kind of you know another normal day at the office versus you know, a holy S moment where everything is going, everybody is not only surprised, but they go to startle and in that kind of thing. A video camera will help us when they go, uh, you know, when the crew is talking and they go, what the hell is it doing now? I don't care what they look like when they say those words, what the hell is it doing now? I want to know what they're looking at that prompts that, that statement. What the hell is it doing now? And if you look at Cali, Columbia, American Airlines 757, um, when they had the hook on the magenta line on their, uh, on their flight management uh, system and, and, of course, the PFD, because they had put in a wrong identifier and they're going, why is it hooked, you know, going the other direction? That's what I want to see. That's how I want to reference the context of that conversation or that comment. I don't care what they look like when they say it. And, and, and then to have a global perspective of a camera that looks into the cockpit, similar to trying to capture just the general sounds of, of a cam or cockpit area microphone. Again, do I really need to see it? Yeah, there's a couple of accidents, maybe a handful over the years where we know that it was an intentional act. We want to know what was going on in the cockpit, you know, or we have, uh, you know, a 9-11 type situation. Okay. Now you get the big picture, but those are rare events. So I'm more concerned with the everyday around the world, you know, normal ops or abnormal ops uh, type operations that result in a serious incident or accident. And again, I'm not necessarily concerned about, you know, what the pilot looks like or the actions that, uh, you know, he's turning his head or she's turning her head and they're trying to... I want to know what they're looking at. I want to know what it is they are referencing when they say, what the hell is it doing now? Well, that's probably going to, the need for that is probably going to diminish over time with these slight data reports. Now, I don't know what the current number for the Airbus is, but uh, for the A380, initially, they, they told me, I was still at the board at that time, they told me that there was over 1,800 parameters recorded on the flight data recorder for things happening to the A380. Well, if we got that kind of parameter uh, recording, we probably don't need a video camera. They probably picking up everything that the camera would tell us anyway. But yeah. we still have, you know, 30,000 old airplanes out there. And they're the yeah. ones that we could benefit to have the recorder uh, in, because we're not going to get a retrofit on those airplanes for those kinds of recorders. They, they really have to be built in at the at, data manufacturer. So the next generation of airplanes after the 787 and after the A380 Airbus is going to have uh, robust uh, recorders. So over time, that's going to catch up. And, you know, we saw all the 757s now are, are virtually out of the passenger business. Uh, they're going away. Uh, many of the 67s are going away. So it's going, to it's going to take care of itself over the next uh, eight or 10 years, probably. But in yeah. the meantime, if we have any accidents, uh, challenging accidents, we're not going to be able to maybe solve them as fully as we'd like. Fortunately, because of all the systems that we've put in place, 
separate from what's on the airplane, our accident rate has been right down at the bare minimums. You know, in the U.S., we haven't had a major loss in 10 years or so, whatever. I forget what the number is. We haven't had an accident here in these United States that has killed more than 50 people in the accident since 2001. And that was the American Airlines accident uh, involving the A300 um, where the vertical stab came off. Um, we did have Colgan slash Continental Express up in Buffalo. And of course we did have Comair, but uh, those were 50 and below. And then, yeah, while well, we lost a triple seven with Asiana coming into San Francisco, the three fatalities were passengers that were ejected. But other than that, we have not had that catastrophic loss like we've seen, especially around the world in, in uh, Asia and that area with uh, both um, Indonesia, Ethiopia, they've had a multitude of accidents outside the United States. So we've, we're doing things right. Um, we definitely have a lot of room for improvement worldwide. And I agree with you that, yeah, while some things may diminish as time goes on with, with technology, again, I still think that we need human intervention. I preach it all the time. I talk about it in my acts investigation and when I do safety presentations, and that is the human is the most flexible and adaptable machine in the cockpit. And I give, I give scenarios all the time. <clears throat> and I, I pose this to our audience. Just think about the miracle on the Hudson. And while Sully and, and Jeff Skiles, you know, they were the humans behind the wheel, if you will, even though it's a side stick in that airplane. They made the decision based on what they felt the performance or lack thereof of that airplane was they chose to put the airplane down in the water. Now, here's the scenario for you, John. Let's take both those humans out of the airplane. What kind of decision do you think a computer would have made under those exact circumstances? And where do you think the computer would have tried to take that airplane? Yeah, given the computer technology available at the time that airplane was built, it would have looked for another airport, which- Yeah, it would have looked for a, a piece of pavement to try and get back to. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, while, yes, we are developing these artificial intelligent, you know, and smart avionics and that kind of stuff. At what point can't the computer be smart enough to make that kind of decision? Or is it over, is it going to be overly smart to the point where it may make the wrong decision as well? So, I mean, these are the challenges. I mean, that's the cool thing about aviation is that we're developing all this technology. And then of course, uh, you know, we're taking it to the next level with commercial space. And that's a whole nother discussion for a whole nother day on the show. And we're going to have Hoot Gibson on the show. He's a five-time shuttle astronaut. He's a friend of ours. Um, we're going to be talking about that because that, of course, is now lumped in to, um, into um, not only today's modern quote aviation because aviation now is melded with aerospace and in fact from what i understand from my inside sources at the ntsb the division i used to work in which was uh, as10 or office of major investigations they've changed their name they've now incorporated not only major aerospace or aviation cases but uh, they've they've added the space component to it and now everybody's got a new title. That should be uh, interesting to say the least. 
But going on, uh, we got to see uh, the new technology with the airplanes. Of course, Gulfstream was uh, was out there um, showing their G700, which is their newest, latest and greatest $100 million machine. Um, it, the, the marvels of technology, if you will, they're gorgeous airplanes. Honda has come out with a stretch version of the Honda Jet. Of course, Pilatus and, and all the other major manufacturers were there, uh, the So Falcon and, and things like that. I mean, it, the, the machines are beautiful. Uh, the technology is awesome. And, and it's always good to see that kind of stuff. Of course, you know, it's beyond my price range, but I know that it fits right into your petty cash budget, John. Right. Um, it's just, you're having a difficult time figuring out which one you want to buy. Yeah, I love the, uh, well, there's a lot of technology filtering down through the GA. So I love what, I was very keen to watch the, uh, the simulators that people yep. have at home, which I'd love to have one at home. Uh, to go fly, but I, there's a lot of interesting people you run into at those conferences. And, and uh, well, I saw the heads up display uh, in one and I was really, really pleased to see how much heads up displays have improved over the years. Yeah. I can remember working on the original 1980s version of the McDonnell Douglas heads up display that they put in their MD 80s. And, uh, and the clarity and the information that was posted on it were not the best. They were beneficial, but they were not the best. What I saw there as state of the art today was just unbelievably good. And and we're not talking millions of dollars for that system. That that entire system, their their market is not big airplanes. Their market, because uh, the guy who owns the company is a friend of mine. He's got it mounted in his Cirrus, and that's the market they're going after is the general aviation market to better assist those of us who fly single pilot on a regular basis to give us more information, better situational awareness so that we can make better decisions, especially in those types of uh, environmental conditions, i.e. smoke and, and of course, uh, convective weather, snowstorms, things like that. We are able to fly the approaches better um, than just using the conventional methods of shooting an ILS or some sort of non-precision approach. You've got better guidance. You have better situational awareness through the use of um, not only a heads-up display that projects out towards the windscreen, but as, uh, as they demonstrated to us, now they got a headset and basically modeled after what the military is doing with their helmet and, of course, their heads-up display. Now they have that similar type setup for a general aviation pilot. Yes, that was quite fascinating to see that that technology will filter all the way down to little airplanes. Yeah. But I don't know. I used to like my J2 with the basic <laughs> five. <laughs> yeah, well, your heads up display was actually having your head up and looking out the window. Yes. So <laughs> good old fashioned way. Exactly. Way. Exactly. So, I mean, the, the technology is great. And, and I think the biggest thing, John, that I took away from the show, well, there were a number of things. One, um, of course, everyone is still concerned with COVID. Um, they did a very good job in protecting the environment for a large crowd. And that was they were requiring demonstration that you did have your, your vaccine shots. Um, they were requiring masks in the big open lobby areas, except for once you were cleared 
um, with your vaccine protocols to, uh, to then walk around freely without a mask. And I just read today, as a matter of fact, uh, the day that this show is being taped, um, that now the governor in uh, Nevada is thinking about relieving that mask mandate there. But they did a good job in screening and, um, and, and actually they had a lot of security there catching people and reminding people, hey, in this particular area, you gotta wear a mask. And they were, they were enforcing it. So I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see that. But I think the bigger thing, John, is you and I got to see a lot of people that we haven't seen in a while. You know, friends, colleagues, and even people that listen to our show, um, we were able to get some, you know, real-time feedback as well. Yes, and, and I took note of several good ideas for, for future shows. Because my ideal list keeps growing, but we, you know, doing only one show a week. Yeah, we're going to be here for a lot of years, John. <laughs> it's going to take a long time. You know, yeah. we have to mention the uh, commitment from the business aviation community to going green. Yes, that was a big deal that they committed uh, by 2050 that aviation will business aviation will be carbon neutral. Yes, so that that was that was a big deal, and and uh, they're making some pretty good progress already. I'm sure it's going to be fits and starts, you know, make progress and then slow down and then make some progress again. Over, yeah. over. But but uh, the fact that they now have a very focused agenda to make. Uh, to reduce the carbon footprint for, for that segment of aviation will be great because it's also going to filter down uh, to the general aviation community because the technology for both is so close together. Yeah. Right. So no, it's all Gulf streams in the business aviation community. Yeah. You know, uh, and, and of course, everybody is concerned about the environment twofold, if not tenfold right now. And in all the things that are, uh, that are out there to try and hurt the humans on, on this planet. But it was good to hear that. And they actually, this wasn't just a passing thought or comment or, you know, some little thing that they, they pinned up on uh, one of the banners. They had a whole presentation about it. And, and Ed Bolin is, uh, is very sincere when they talk about that the industry is taking this very seriously and working collectively to achieve that goal. Yes. Yes. So, and, and of course, then we got to see a lot of old friends. I got to catch up with some, some that, <laughs> some of my idiot friends that are there. That's always good because they're very entertaining. And then, of course, uh, some people that, hey, you know, you and I consider friends. Uh, they may not always like uh, the fact that they're they were or are in roles that you and I, you know, poke fun at or start poking on this show, from an accountability standpoint and. You and I got to run into uh, an old friend, and that is the former chairman of the NTSB, Robert Sumwalt. Yes, well, I've been, uh, I, I did an accident with Sumwalt in the 85, 86 uh, time frame. So he's been, a, I've known him for a long time. And, uh, and I, I've had conversations with him often. I don't think we go more than a few months without having conversations. So it's, it's, uh, yeah, I consider him a friend and sometimes friends will criticize you. And I have. Yeah. And well, gonna... we, we look, you and I've gone after the NTSB since we started this show. People think it's NTSB bashing because we're whatever we're disgruntled. We're not disgruntled. That's the lasting or the furthest thing that we're doing when it comes to this show. And when we're critical of the NTSB, 
were critical of the NTSB for the very reason of accountability. You're held accountable, I'm held accountable, that agency is held accountable because they are the forefront of aviation safety and their mission is to enhance aviation safety through incident and acts investigation. We don't bash them as for the purpose of their mission and, and, and what they're trying to achieve. We go after them, especially when it comes to some people and, and the fact that they don't necessarily fulfill that mission the way we think it should be fulfilled. And that's not just personal opinion, John. It's never been a personal opinion of mine. I bleed NTSB. I've never stopped doing that. But people have to be held accountable. You and I have dissected accidents where we thought there were shortcomings in the investigative process that should have been further developed. You've talked about it with maintenance, that a lot of these accidents that the board has investigated, you know, especially maintenance accidents, the investigative process starts, stops at the hangar door. And we think that it needs to keep going. But that's why I, I mean, I know that it needs to be going in, yeah. in those situations because they didn't put the spotlight on the real problems inside the hangar. And if you don't have the spotlight on the problem, yeah. it doesn't get the, the attention it needed to be addressed. Yeah. And I saw so, that over and over and over again. Only in the rarest and largest situations, like the Aloha, did, they, did it come in yeah. into the hangar. You know, we made recommendations after the DC-10 crash in Sioux City, Iowa, about inspections. And we had some upgrades in inspections, not across the board, right? Yeah. Not across the board. Didn't reach every airline and every operation, right? And that's because it wasn't, the spotlight wasn't put on it firmly. And that there's more, we could do a whole show just I know. Well, the big thing is, you know, I, again, um, I consider these people, you know, they may not consider me a friend, but I consider them, you know, a friend or a colleague. Um, and again, I've been critical. I just posted something on Facebook recently about the fact that the NTSB is sitting in Hawaii right now, and they finally decided that they're going to pull the uh, 737 that went down three months ago. They're finally going to get it out of the water. The cockpit voice recorder, flight data recorder has been sitting underwater for three months. What I was very, very, very taken aback about when I listened to the press conference was the fact that the board has put the onus on the operator's insurance company to go out and receive bids on recovering that wreckage. In all the time I've ever been with the NTSB and the process and, and that kind of thing, we never waited on the insurance company to recover the wreckage. Because if that were really the case, you'd be still up in New York, John, waiting for the insurance company to recover TWA 800. That's why the board went for a supplemental budget. That money was to recover the airplane. I had to get money to help finish off uh, value jet. So I was really, really surprised that they used that as an excuse. The other thing is, and my biggest concern is, it's taken three months even to get around to it. They keep using COVID in the sea state out there for recovery. And let me give you another scenario. Instead of the two pilots that survived and they drowned a bunch of boxes, what would have, what would have happened if that was 150 people on that airplane, half of which died in the accident? Would that airplane still be underwater three months later? Yeah, probably not. Probably. Yeah, it wouldn't have been acceptable. Those boxes would have been up within three days. And oh, by the way, the airplane crashed in Hawaii. Why don't you just go right around the corner and talk to the Navy? 
they got a lot of assets there that could have recovered that wreckage pretty quick. So That's what those we, are the kinds what? of things. What? We've used Navy salvage people before in access. Exactly. Up all the TWA. Yeah. Well, that's the whole purpose, John. And that's why, you know, you and I get very passionate about the fact it's about accountability and things deviating from the norm. And, you know, we're putting safety on hold. Why? Because we're trying to get a bid from an insurance company on what it's going to cost. And we're going to let them recover the airplane and we're going to take advantage. What the hell over? I mean, I, I, I still don't understand that. I'm still passionate about the fact that the not only the flying public, but the public in general deserves to understand and know in, in not again, not in a sloppy way, but in a thorough and methodical way, what's going on so that we can prevent similar accidents from happening, because that is the mission and the purpose of the board, investigate, identify, and enhance, and yeah, can't I'm wait concerned. that long. I'm concerned today that we, we've lost a, a more than a year's worth of uh, potential data from all the general aviation accidents that have crashed with, we haven't done a little or no investigation for, yeah. you know. And, and, yeah, and you're right. You bring up a great point because now with over the, those 400 plus accidents that they didn't go out and get the good stuff all of last year because they didn't travel because of COVID that we talked about, what's the good stuff that we're losing and how thorough and methodical can those or are those investigations going to be? And are they really going to, develop into safety recommendations that will enhance the safety of not only general aviation, but aviation as a whole. So, well, I know that uh, we've gone off and pontificated and, uh, and it, again, it was good to see you in person. And, you know, the show I thought was, uh, was, was beneficial because we got back into aviation. We're gonna get back to uh, dissecting some more accidents. We, like you said, you got some good feedback on specific accidents that we should we should actually talk about. So we'll uh, we'll be uh, spooling those up and uh, doing future shows on it. But uh, again, um, it was you know it was a good show. It was good good to be back in an aviation oriented crowd. Yeah, it's the first show now, starting the show season coming up. So uh, the meeting season. It's not really a show. It's a long wrong way to say it. Yeah, but it's. It's we're going to start uh, sharing data and and doing the things that we've done for years now that led to this this very low accident rate that we were experiencing over the last 20 years. Yeah, so keep that momentum going and not lose it, not fall back into complacency or or any of the other negative trends that would lead to an accident. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my friend, as I always do with you, I know you're going to take us out with uh with uh, uh thanks to our sponsors and then of course as i always do with you i'm going to leave you with the last word okay so i remind everybody that this show is being brought to you by pama the professional aviation maintenance association that's p-a-m-a dot o-r-g if you want to get a hold of them and by avemco insurance and they are again in my view the premier general aviation insurance company you know, how loss, liability, CFI insurance, uh, all kinds of general aviation insurance. If you need to call them, give them a, give them a call at 888-879-0389. Again, 888-879-0389.
uh, evento.com. And as I say all the time, if you're going to go flying, do a very thorough pre-planning session. You know, make sure you know where you're going to put it down if you lose an engine on takeoff. We've just seen an, another accident like that. And when you get out to your airplane, do a very thorough pre-flight. I've talked it to depth. I've watched hundreds and hundreds of pilots do pre-flights, and I'm not impressed with what I see. And if you haven't flown for a while, get somebody who has to fly with you. You know, we all get rusty. We all forget things and fly safely.